Welcome to Hidden Gems Toronto, the podcast that introduces you to a variety of fascinating people and places that fly under the radar but are a vital part of our city's fabric. I'm your host, urban geographer Tom Scanlon, and I invite you to don your virtual hiking boots and join us as we track down these compelling stories. To me, that's the, the peak, the epitome of uh, great skiing is heli skiing. You feel that you're in a different world away from civilization. Every time you get out, you get your skis, and, and then the helicopter takes off. It just seems to fall down the steep mountainside. And you think, oh my goodness, how am I going to get down from way out here? Right on. Unbelievable. I'm not sure what you have planned for your 95th birthday celebration, but dollars to donuts, you won't be going hella skiing in British Columbia. But as you just heard, that is exactly what our guest did in 2019, and that feat put him into the Guinness World Book of Records. On this podcast, you will see that hella skiing is just one of his many interesting accomplishments. Add in the fact that he has traveled to more than 100 countries and performed magic tricks both while traveling and at home, and you have yourself one very fascinating personality. I hope you enjoy hearing about the life and times of Gordon Precious. Hello, Gordon, and welcome to the podcast. And Tom, hello. Glad to chat with you. Well, listen, before we get talking about your fascinating life as a world traveler and magician, we have to talk about how you celebrated your 95th birthday. I don't know if you know, Gordon, but we actually ran a contest here to see if listeners could predict what you did on your birthday that got you into the Guinness World Book of Records, and not a single person got it right. Some people (laughs) thought you jumped out of an airplane in a parachute. Some people thought you ran a marathon. So tell us, how did this whole, I want to go hella skiing on my 95th birthday come about? Well, I have loved skiing ever since I was 12 years old, and I have had the pleasure of skiing all around the world, even in Hawaii on a high mountain there. And each five years, I treat myself to uh, heli skiing, and it can be rather expensive. I remember one of the promotional films of one of the companies made the statement that anyone who says that the best things in life are free hasn't tried heli skiing. (laughs) Touche. And so I have gone every five years uh, heli skiing out in British Columbia, which is the best heli skiing area in all the world. Without a doubt, I've checked the European and other continents and the most heli skiing and the best is in our own British Columbia. I've seen the video. You seem so relaxed, but was part of you <laughs> sort of terrified? The only moment you might say I'm close to terrified is when you get out of the helicopter, jump onto the glacier at the peak of the mountain, and all the other passengers and guides are out standing beside you, and the helicopter pilot goes into vertical lift for just a short distance, and then he swings over into the abyss and just 
drops down into the valley uh, out of sight. And when you lose sight of him and you look around, you think, my gosh, what am I doing up here? How am I going to get down? But then let common sense take over and say, look, I have skied everywhere before and they have a guide here and they sure don't want to lose anybody. So I know that it must be something ahead that they know I am capable of doing. Did you know it was going to be uh, Guinness Book of Records at the time? Yes. When I arrived at the CMH Caribous, the manager knew that I was coming and I had been there before. And we greeted each other with a big hug and he said, we think tomorrow we'd like to see you set the world record while you're here. And that was exactly what we had thought ahead of time. We saw that the oldest skier up to that time was below age 95, and so we knew that this would be a, a world record. And, oh, it, the day was just perfect. Blue, blue sky and no wind and untracked snow ahead of us. The guide set off and ran maybe 50 meters down the slope. And then he said, now you go ahead, Gordon. The snow is about knee deep and nice powder. And you just feel like a bird soaring in the mountains. What a wonderful story, Gordon. And listen, I don't want to only dwell on your age because <laughs> you've got a lot of interesting experiences to talk about, but you have seen amazing things in your lifetime. You've seen marvelous advances in science, technology, health. Which invention had the most impact? Maybe not on the world in general, but on you personally. That's not easy to say. There have been marvelous inventions in my time. The way that everybody's carrying a mobile phone in his hand, and as soon as the school children come out of school, they're all talking into their phones. And my own personal experience, just an idea how old I am. During the Second World War, I joined the Royal Canadian Air Force, and I was training as a pilot. And can you believe it? The old plane that I had was almost like a kite with a motor. It was called a de Havilland Tiger Moth. It was a biplane. In other words, you had two lengthy wings, one above the other. I've seen pictures of these in World War I <laughs> to think that we were still using them for training in World War II makes me chuckle compared to now the passenger jets that we have. They're so quiet. It used to be you couldn't drink a cup of coffee in the plane. You'd spill it on your lap. It vibrated so much. And now they're so smooth. And the way beyond the planes, they can shoot up into outer space. That is amazing. Gordon, you mentioned two world wars. You lived through the Depression, those wars, polio, now COVID. There's no question that this COVID is the most upsetting life-wise thing that's happened in my lifetime. We've had polio pandemic when I was in my teens and stopped by the vaccines that they had at that time. But the worst by far, worse than the depression, worse than the effects of the Second World War, at least here in North America, has been the COVID pandemic, just incredible. I do hope that it's going to go away. Oh, that's significant. When I think of all the things you've seen, that uh, COVID outweighs them all, eh? By the way, I don't have my mask on right now. I hope that's okay. <laughs> okay. So far, Gordon, it hasn't transferred through the telephone lines that I know of, although there's probably some conspiracy groups out there that say it can. 
I'd like to change gears if we can, Gordon, and talk about your life as a magician. What was your first experience with magic? Well, I was bitten by the magic bug when I was seven years old and enthralled by so-called magic all my life without interruption. And I have read so many books on magic and the allied arts, as we call it, which would include hypnotism and mind reading or so-called mind reading and, and even juggling is uh, considered an allied art. At first, I read all the books in my local library in the juvenile section, and they didn't have money. So they sent me up to the main library in Hamilton with a note to the head librarian, and she took me into a locked-in section of the library where they kept their books on advanced magic and on the subject of sex. And I don't know what else was kept in this lock room. I read all of these, many of them written back in the previous century, the 18th and 19th and 20th century. And I just loved the subject. And then when I started out around the world, it was to look for magicians, mind readers, and whatever in the allied arts I could find. The greatest magician I ever saw was at the Suez Canal. His name was Galli Galli, and he came on board a ship that I was on going through the canal and performed for all the passengers out on the deck. And I can remember him borrowing a gold wedding ring from a Dutch soldier, and he asked him to remove it and hand it to him. The magician held it up close to his eyes, and then he just threw the ring over the railing into the Suez Canal, and everybody just gasped. And then he asked to borrow a handkerchief, and he took his wand and asked this young soldier to hold each end of the wand at his fingertips, and he covered it with the borrowed handkerchief and waved his hand over it and then pulled the handkerchief away, and there was the ring back on the wand, seemingly out of the Suez Canal. It was just like a miracle. And then his most famous effect, as we call them magic tricks in the magic profession, most amazing effect that he was known for around the world were the cups and balls, which is an ancient magical effect. You see it in the pyramids, paintings of them doing the magic. But with him, he had three cups and a little ball that would move magically and visibly from one cup to another, and they put it on top of a cup and wave his hand, and it would drop in through the cup inside. And then finally, he lifts a cup, and there's a live chick that starts to scoot it on the deck and then he lifts the other and another chick and he lifts the other cup the third and a third chick and then he goes back and relifts the first cup and another chick comes out and soon he's got at least a dozen live chicks running all over the deck that was the most famous magician i have ever seen when you're in your 20s you decided to embark on well just a major trip but Let's talk about that. What was your original plan when you set off? I, I had a geography teacher in high school who made other countries and their customs so real and interesting to us. And I thought, oh, I'd love to visit the Arab world and Africa and, and see the street magicians of India. And I'd love to go to Japan. 
So when I was 24, I had been working and saved up some money. I think it was $2,000 at that time. And I thought, I'll take 1000 and go as far as I can around the world on that. And of course, that at that time was quite a bit. And I'll leave another 1000 in my account with my parents in case of an emergency. They could buy me a plane ticket, like say in case a war broke out or I got badly injured or something. And I started out and went by boat from Quebec City to the port of London, England. And at that time, hitchhiking was quite popular in Canada, but it didn't work in England, not because the people weren't willing to give me a ride, but because there was gas rationing. I get in the car, but they only had enough gas to go three or four miles up the road. I ended up solving the problem by buying a motorcycle. I had never driven a motorcycle before, and I drove this small BSA Bantam from Birmingham, England, all the way out to Beirut, Lebanon, all through Europe. It was a marvelous trip, but I got to northern Italy at Christmas time. There was so much snow in the Alps that it was very difficult to ride the bike. So I went down to the port in Trieste and got a boat and worked on a passenger ship as a deckhand from Trieste down to Australia. They liked the work that I did so well, they promoted me to an officer rank and I made a second trip with them to Australia and back. Then on out through Yugoslavia and Greece and Turkey. In Lebanon, it's a beautiful country on the coast of the Mediterranean, palm trees and oranges and bananas and whatnot. I had an introduction to a young Lebanese who was a graduate of the American University in Beirut. He introduced me to the president of the university and he hired me to teach English for a year. And can you imagine skiing? in Lebanon. I mean, this is just north of Israel and, and Palestine, but they have great skiing up in the cedars of Lebanon. There I met a, a beautiful French woman who was also a keen skier and also teaching, and we ended up getting married, and we sold the small motorcycle and bought a 350 cubic centimeter matchless. It was an ex-British Army uh, machine that had been refurbished. We rode it from Alexandria, Egypt, and Seven months later, we ended up in Cape Town, South Africa. So we rode uh, 10,000 miles from Alexandria to Cape Town. Great trip. Never forget that. Wow. You talk about magic in a magical land. You met your partner there, obviously kindred spirits. While you were traveling, were you doing magic tricks too? Was that part of the experience? Yes, government uh, people that live in Africa who were English-speaking or French-speaking and missionaries. They were all very kind in offering to put us up for a, a night or two. In recompense, I would do some magic for the, the family, and they always had servants, and they all gathered together in the, the living room and watched me perform the small effects that I was able to carry with me, such as silk handkerchiefs and money and sponge balls. But when we got to India, my $1,000 had finally exhausted, even though I had made money uh, on a ship and teaching. 
And so we were out of funds. I still had the thousand at home that I could call upon if I needed to. But in Delhi, India, I went to the top hotel in the city and asked if by chance they had a floor show. In fact, I knew they did from the newspaper. And would they be interested in including a magician from Canada? And the manager was very interested, but he said, I'd have to see your act. You can come back on Friday and perform for me. And I had nothing with me of any size at that time for an audience in a large hotel dining room, which was a nightclub type of act. So I went to the marketplace and a little boy offered to help me. He understood a little bit of English and helped me buy things. I bought great big silk handkerchiefs, various colors, and an umbrella, and I wanted a rabbit, of course, and he <laughs> brought me this lovely white rabbit, but of all things, its ears were clipped, and just as in <laughs> Canada, we used to clip the tails of dogs. There they took the ears, and I said, no, no, I can't accept this. And so he took the rabbit back and finally told me a nice big white rabbit with long ears. And that was the opening of my act. In fact, I walked out with only a newspaper in my hand. I opened up the newspaper and looked on both sides of it and then crumpled it into a, a big ball and then reached into the ball, which was the newspaper, and extracted this nice big white rabbit. Did you grab it by the ears? No, I, I guess I used to until I learned that that was not the way to handle a rabbit. I take it you got the job, right? Yes. And in fact, with two hotels that were owned by the same company, I would start my act at 11.15 at night in the one night club. My act was only for eight minutes. I would do my whole act and then quickly pack it up and the uh, hotel taxi would take me across town from New Delhi to Old Delhi to their other hotel and then at a quarter to 12 I would start my act there and uh, another eight minutes so my working day was only from 11 p.m. till midnight. And for that, they paid me very, very well and gave us accommodation in a beautiful suite of rooms in a first-class hotel. So that was such a change for us. They signed me for a month and re-signing me again for another month. And then we thought we better get on our way. So that was a great experience. And then from there on in Vietnam and China and Japan, it was easy for me to get engagements performing magic because newspaper advertising that I could take from India to show them. We've got no internet at that point and you're, you're just showing up, right? Yeah, yeah that's right. When I would get into a any town or city, I was particularly interested in finding their street magicians, as they're called. They don't perform in a theater. They perform right out in the street. That's where the famous uh, Indian rope trick is performed, where the magician throws a rope uh, high up into the air, and then a little boy climbs the rope, and then suddenly the boy disappears, and the rope drops back down into a basket. Typical of magicians traveling through India, I put a, an ad in the newspaper and offered 10,000 rupees for anyone who could uh, take me to see the 
famous Indian rope trick. And as all the other magicians have found, the same as I, there were no takers. I have never seen it, although a lot of people claim to have seen it. It's helpful. I think it's mythology. Well, you know, Gordon, I've read that when you started out on this trip, you were hoping to find real magic. That was part of the purpose. And did you find real magic? No, I certainly looked for it. and, And I'd be in a village, say, in India, and say that I was a magician and wanted to see one. They, oh, you should have been here last week. I heard all my travel. Oh, you should have been here last week. There was this incredible magician and he could take a piece of dirt off the road and put it in his bare hand and put his other hand over it and go through some magical gestures and then when he opened up his hand this large bird would fly out of his hand real magic but i'm afraid i've never seen real magic in all my travels and i have looked far and wide and i've seen magicians like myself who, for want of a better term, use trickery. It's not real magic, of course. So I've never seen it. I don't expect I ever will see real magic. So, Gordon, how long was that trip? You set off, I think you were going to stay a year or something, and how long were you gone for? I had told my parents I'd be six months minimum, and maybe as long as two years, but I'm slow at everything, so it was three <laughs> and a half years before oh, I got back. By the way, there was a travel agency in Hamilton before I went to a trip, but I loved their logo, which was, see this world before the next. And so <laughs> I've done my best. You've done I've your visited best, over 100 countries now, and and enjoyed them all. When you came home, I guess you realized you couldn't make a living doing magic, but you kept it up more as a hobby. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. I would do probably an average of one or two shows a week for the Lions Club or the Masonic Lodges, ballroom side shows. And, and that helped me at least pay for my magic and the conventions that I would attend. And I did all my life. I also went into the life insurance business in Hamilton for almost 50 years. I'm rather proud of the fact that I was the first life insurance agent who became an independent broker for life insurance in Hamilton. My wife, who was French and loved Beirut, and she loved Paris and would love to live there, but wasn't practical during my insurance career. But when I retired, we moved to Toronto and lived in a a beautiful part of Toronto near the Granite Club where I played tennis and would work out every fall to get in shape for the ski season. This was up until about seven years ago when my wife died at age 92. Subsequent to that, I've had the terrific good fortune of meeting another wonderful woman, Tracy, and we are enjoying life together. You've talked so much about other magic tricks that you've witnessed, but you're a star in your own right. Every magician, I think, has a bit of a calling card or it's their their signature move, and I think yours is the the bird in the cage one. Can you describe that to us? When I was 16 years old, I had the great thrill of seeing Harry Blackstone Sr. He was a stage magician who traveled all over North America, and he came to Hamilton and performed there. One of his classic effects was he would go off stage and walk back on with a canary in a small birdcage held between both hands, and he would come right up to the 
front of the stage and ask everybody to keep their eye on the cage. All of a sudden, woof, he would clap his hands together and the cage and canary were gone. And then he would go off stage and bring it back on again and then ask children to come up and they would circle around him and put their hands all around the cage. One would put her hands on top and another on the bottom and on the sides and all of his arms. So he was surrounded by children and all of a sudden, woof, the canary and cage would vanish again and the children would be looking all over the stage, looking for where this canary in cage could have gone. It took me several years to, to perfect it because it's not an, an easy effect to do. And it has become sort of my signature effect. And by the way, can you imagine, I didn't have it with me in India when I wanted to perform my nightclub act. And a street magician told me that he had one that he'd never learned to use it, and he gave me his cage, and I got a canary for it. It was just wonderful. Oh, serendipity. Fantastic. Speaking of travel, I mentioned to you that I've been to a hundred countries, but one of the other great trips besides the one around the world, my wife and I realized we had done all of the continents except South America, and that we would do that with our children when they got old enough. So we decided we would take our children, take them out of school early, which the principal and teachers were quite agreeable to. In May 1974, we bought a Jeep Wagoneer and we started off, the five of us, to travel down to South America through U.S., Mexico, Central America, and Panama, and into South America. We took four and a half months, and I had someone looking after my business very efficiently, and it was a marvelous experience. Gordon, in, in my generation and yours, after high school or university, kids would tend to take a year off, go traveling, and see the world. And I think that experience impacted our outlook on life. And I'm wondering, the way the world is now, would you still encourage young kids to take time off and explore the globe? Absolutely. And I'm sure it can be done with reasonable care and caution. It's a wonderful world, and I just love all the people in the world. They're truly my brother. As a philosopher once said, I never met a man I didn't like. I can almost say that, except the the occasional person who <laughs> okay. does mean things to others. I can't easily like them, but I do love my fellow man, regardless of color or creed, and I hope that everyone can embrace their fellow citizens. That's beautiful, Gordon. Let me finish off with a couple of questions. Okay, you're coming up to your 100th. So how are we going to top this hell of skiing? Are we going to do it again <laughs> on one ski, or what's our plan? <laughs> yes, uh, my uh, Guinness Book of World Record has been beaten. I was the world's oldest at age 94 or 95, but now someone else is, who is, I guess, think 96 has taken it. Uh, but I hope that uh, at 100, I may be able to go back and the CMH heli skiing that uh, have these lodges, they've promised me a, a free trip to uh, come back and ski at 100. Well, I don't think anyone's gone wrong betting on you, Gordon, so I'm going to say you're going to break that record for sure. I know you, you lived all your life in Hamilton, but 
you've moved to Toronto and we always end our show by asking our guests, what is it you like most about living in Toronto? Well, everything is a little more dynamic in Toronto. Uh, for instance, the Magic Club in, in Hamilton, which I always belong to, would have maybe 15 or 20 members or at the club in Toronto would have a hundred and some of them would be very super magicians and some were full-time professionals. I have a lot of magic friends there and we were fortunate enough to buy a house near the Granite Club and I love tennis. I'll start trying to get back in shape. Uh, I did go skiing just one day last year, but I'll do more and Hope to be able to heli-ski at 100 with a smile. <laughs> okay, Gordon, I'm going to finish off, and I mean this most sincerely. You mentioned that you went on that worldwide trip, partly to discover real magic, but came home to the conclusion that real magic doesn't exist. And I, I don't want to go all weepy on you, but maybe you did find the real magic, and maybe the real magic is you. Because <laughs> seriously, another another interviewer once said, Gordon may be the most interesting person in the world. And I tell you, <laughs> after talking with you today, I think you might have a point. Well, thank you. <laughs> and uh, God bless you. Listen, it's just a treat talking to you. I really appreciate you being on the podcast. And my pleasure too, Tom. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure to share some of these thoughts with you and look forward to putting my hand on your shoulder one of these days. Thank you, Gordon. Well, Gordon really is precious. If you go to the hiddengemstoronto.net site, you can find a link to the CMH heliskiing video where you can view Gordon's amazing adventure. You can also see him perform his signature bird in the cage magic trick. I want to update you on our contest in which we asked listeners to guess what Gordon did to get into the Guinness Book of World Records. Well, not surprisingly, no one guessed correctly. Parachuting and running a marathon were the two most common entries. My personal favorite was from two 11-year-old twins. The fact they are my niece and nephew did not influence me whatsoever. Jake McLean guessed parachuting and his sister Claire thought maybe he was the quickest person for his age to solve the Rubik's Cube. I have sent Gordon a note suggesting he consider celebrating his 100th birthday by parachuting and solving the Rubik's Cube while in the air. Stay tuned. With no winner, we have decided to give the coveted Hidden Gems mug to Carolyn Wilby, a loyal listener who suggested we invite Gordon on the show. So congratulations, Carolyn, and many thanks for your great suggestion. On our next podcast, airing February 1st, we're going in a totally different direction. You will meet nurse practitioner Bertha Hughes, who has been a guiding light for many patients and their families in the cardiovascular and vascular surgery unit at St. Mike's Hospital. I know how compassionate, insightful, and informative she is in her work from a personal experience when my father and our family benefited from her guidance a number of years ago. We talk about the work she has done in that ward, as well as her take on the state of nursing in general and how COVID has impacted her profession. I think you will learn a lot from what she has to say. As always, thanks for listening and keep sending us your story ideas. The Hidden Gems podcast is produced and edited by Sharon Scanlon.